You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week? I'm all right. How are you doing? Do you want to tell the people about your affliction? Nope. You don't want to talk about it? Not really. It's kind of gross. It is. I haven't seen it, but it looks extremely gross. Right now, you look like the bass player in a 90s alternative rock band. You got a... What appears to be a, a, either some white gauze or a white armband wrapped around your forearm? It's There's some gauze with some wrap over it. And let me tell you something. This this right here, this is not for me. This is for you so that you don't have to look at it. So this is, let's be, let's be clear so everyone knows what we're talking about. This is your active lifestyle coming to bite you in the ass. Yeah, kind of. You have some staff on your arm from jujitsu. I don't know if it's staff exactly, but it is some kind of skin infection. What What had happened was I got basically like a like a carpet burn essentially from somebody's gi when I on the inside of my forearm when I was sliding it under their arm to uh pry their arms off when they were defending an arm bar. Uh I totally got that arm bar by the way. Nice. Uh, well I'm glad you yeah. didn't do it for nothing. And and at first it was just like this like basically that's just like a big carpet burn, really extremely painful carpet burn on the inside of my arm. Um, and then I thought I was doing a pretty good job making sure to keep it clean, but like an idiot, I also kept going to jujitsu and wearing the gi and basically it's a bacteria trap. And while the thing healed, uh, then it seemed like there had some stuff had gotten in there underneath it and formed a, a gross infection. So I'm, I'm dealing with that right now. Uh, emphasis on the phrase like an idiot, yeah. right? In that explanation i probably yeah i probably should have in retrospect should have taken some more steps to prevent that from happening um but uh you know you live and learn well after coming over to my house to expose my family to this dread disease i assume that you are going to seek some kind of professional medical help we'll see we'll see how it looks tomorrow i think right now i'm uh i think i'm making some headway against it the good thing about kind of semi-regularly contracting skin infections uh from grappling mats is that I have all the prescription ointments and shit already at home, so I can just break into my medicine cabinet and treat it myself. Uh, or maybe I can't, and maybe next week I'll show up with a big-ass hole in my arm like Kevin Randleman. That is so nasty. All right, well, here's something new that you'll want to pay attention to. The Co-Main Event Podcast is excited to welcome DraftKings.com as the new flagship sponsor of the show. What? They'll be with us for at least, I don't know, the next few major UFC events, we hope. DraftKings.com is America's favorite daily fantasy sports site. And Ben, it's getting heavy into the fantasy MMA scene with these new daily fantasy tournaments. Here's how it works. Log on to DraftKings.com, create an account if you don't have one already, and then you get ready to play. Just pick five fighters from each event. Stay under the salary cap, and you could be on your way to a serious payday. They're not kidding around about this stuff. You score points when the fighters on your team rack up stats, significant strikes, takedowns. I believe there are bonuses if you pick how and when a fight will end. DraftKings.com awarded over $300 million last year, so the question is not if, but how much you will win. But wait, that's not all, Ben. 
Tell them about the promo code. Well, Chad, you hurry to DraftKings.com and use promo code CME to play for free this weekend during UFC 183. You could win your slice of $1 billion in prizes being awarded this year. Enter CME to play for free now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. That's right. That seems like a promo code everyone can remember. If you register a new account for UFC 183 this weekend and use that promo code CME, you'll get a ticket to play one game for free at DraftKings.com. It doesn't have to be MMA. It could be any sport, they huh. told me today on the phone. Um, so try it. Dip your toe in. Discover that you're a, just a fantasy savant who's just out there taking everybody's money. Why not? I mean, why wouldn't you do it? It's free and, you know, you're helping out a sponsor, a friend of the podcast. We got some music this week. This week's music comes from listener Ben Law and his band Tupunk. That's T-U-P-U-N-K. He says, this is a quote from him, a three-piece Sydney-based punk rock project in as much as we don't plan to do any more of this or ever play live. I appreciate the, the realistic the expectations honesty. there. Yeah, he says the band is mildly Hanson-esque in terms of its personnel with a sweet two brothers, one, one non-brother sonic attack. I thought Hanson were all brothers. I, I don't know. I'm not going to look it up, but okay. So if you like what you hear, you can check out more of them at soundcloud.com slash Tupunk. That's T-U-P-U-N-K. Now see... Here's my thing. This is what I think. If you're, the name of your band is Two Punk, spelled uh -huh. that way, I think that you should be a punk rock Tupac Shakur tribute band. Okay. Like you should only do punk rock covers of Tupac songs. Right. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, who's the one who's going to bite the bullet and get Thug Life tatted across their stomach is the question. Got to be the drummer. That's just nonsense. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Anthony Johnson knocks out Alexander Gustafson. Gustafson cries actual human tears, and John Jones goes ham on his internet troll game. I'd call that a full weekend. And then in round number two, in which Dan Henderson's MMA career officially becomes a Walt Whitman poem. And in round three, despite all his rage, Nick Diaz is still going to fight in a cage for what we can only assume is a six-figure payout and a shot at mixed martial arts immortality. All that, plus Sir Nigel Longstock is back from his lengthy sabbatical, so we'll be playing Master Tweet Theater today. We're going to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me and Just Saying Stuff, but right now, like we always do about this time, we're going to do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First question this week comes from Beaston258. Like it. Let me say, before we get started... Beaston 25.8 sounds a lot more like a guy who should email an MMA podcast than it does an actual MMA fighter nickname. Don't you think? Like Beaston 25.8 should be a guy on a message board. And I mean, I don't see why it can't be both. He writes, the numbers are in and Conor McGregor's show was a success. 3.17 million viewers at the peak. By comparison, the Fox show averaged 2.82 million viewers. This has caused many in the MMA community to let their minds wander when it comes to how many buys his pay-per-view fight against Jose Aldo can be. Don't get me wrong, it should do well. The previous high for a featherweight fight on a pay-per-view was Aldo versus Frankie Edgar at 350,000 buys. This has an incredible chance at, at beating that. However, 
I recall around some two years ago, there was this other fighter that was, quote, the biggest star the UFC had ever seen. There was another historical fighter that was bringing in all kinds of new media. Hell, the New York Times was at her scrum. I'm talking, of course, about Ronda Rousey. Her first fight featuring the open, the first openly gay fighter and first female fighter did 450,000 buys in a much better pay-per-view climate two years ago. Now she's not even headlining her own pay-per-views. Don't get me wrong, she's still a big deal, but not the watershed star many envisioned. Taking the lessons of Rousey and the initial hype, are we getting ahead of ourselves with McGregor? What was the climate like for Rousey compared to McGregor? Okay, I think there's some important differences here. I appreciate somebody, you know, trying to pump the brakes a little bit and asking the question, are we getting ahead of ourselves with McGregor? Because yes, frankly, we are. We have been getting ahead of ourselves with McGregor for a long time. And and let's be honest, though, getting ahead of ourselves with almost everyone who seems like a star in this sport since the beginning of the sport. Yeah, that's what we do. You could say, for example, we got ahead of ourselves with Mark Kerr, right? (laughs) And that was years ago now. As I recall, you were especially ahead of yourself. I should not have gotten this smashing machine tattoo. Yeah, no, it looks good. Uh, You know, I think the important things to remember here are i mean for one thing i say almost a damn guarantee that mcgregor aldo breaks the 350k by mark uh, big time unless there's like some kind of huge financial crisis between now and then uh you know that prevents anybody from having any money laying around to buy the damn thing uh but i think the important distinctions to remember are when you say okay yeah ronda rousey against the first openly gay fighter i mean Okay, I get that that was a cool selling point, but that was not the kind of selling point that gets anybody really to buy the pay-per-view if they if they weren't going to buy it already. Uh, Liz Carmouche was never really expected to be a competitive opponent uh, for Ronda Rousey in that one. It was basically the Ronda Rousey show. Sign, sign up, pay your money to see Ronda Rousey. You know, come see Kong, basically. That's what it was. <laughs> and if Liz Carmouche can put up any kind of fight at all... You know, that's a bonus. And this is not like that. This, the McGregor Aldo thing, it's like, here's this superstar, uh, charismatic dude rocketing to the top. Everybody's wondering if we're getting ahead of ourselves. Now he's going to fight the best in the world at that weight class. Is he going to get absolutely smashed or is he going to prove that he is as good as he says he is? Like, there's a lot more intrigue there, is there not? Yeah, um, and you're, I think you're right to say that there, the, I think it's like a hundred percent certainty that McGregor and Aldo are going to smash the previous featherweight, uh, you know, title fight pay-per-view buys because they're going to sell the shit out of this thing before, oh, yeah. before it happens. Like, how many times are we going to see the, some form of clip of McGregor jumping over the cage and Aldo laughing at him? Like, yeah. 2,000 times between now and the fight? I'll take the over. Uh, here's my question though. Who has, the bigger like obstacle in front of them. Uh, let's just say for argument's sake, Conor McGregor beats Jose Aldo and becomes the champion. Like who has the the bigger task? Would it be Conor McGregor turning the featherweight division into a pay-per-view juggernaut or Ronda Rousey turning the women's 135 pound division into a pay-per-view juggernaut? I would almost say McGregor just because, you know, when the women were added to the UFC, like they kind of came in on this wave of excitement and goodwill and everyone was excited about them being there and they put on great fights and, and, uh, you know, everyone except the weirdos was kind of a fan of, of, of it happening. And by contrast, the smaller men's weight classes seem to face a stigma. You know, I think though that featherweight is, I don't know if people are going to see it 
forever as the smaller men's weight class, especially with now two weight classes below it. Uh, the stigma, I think, is going to get stuck to, to fly weight and, and maybe even bantamweight a little bit. I don't think that featherweight's necessarily going to have that big of a problem. I do think, though, that like, and this was something I was going to bring up when we're making these Rousey-McGregor comparisons is, you know, we can talk all we want about what a big star Ronda Rousey is and Dana White can talk about what a big star she is. Um, but I still think to a lot of fight fans, uh, I think you underestimate the number of weirdos, as you call them. I think there's a lot more people who still see women's MMA as a curiosity um, and a novelty more than anything. A lot of people who are maybe even super huge fight fans who are still like, I don't know, I'm not, not really that into women's MMA. I don't think there are as many just like, you know, ignorant haters of it as there were at, you know, maybe – Five or ten years ago? Let's be clear that when I said weirdos, I meant the ignorant haters. Okay. But, I mean, I still think there are there are a sizable number of people who are like, yeah, you know, I'm not against women's MMA, but I just don't get fired up that much for it. And fine, you know, whatever. They can, they can have those opinions. But I think the bigger obstacle there is – seems like Ronda Rousey has nobody to fight. That you're, yeah. you're just running out of opponents for Ronda. It seems like it's Ronda Rousey and then a warm body that you're throwing in there against her. I and this the the appeal of the Aldo McGregor is that you have two people who sell it in completely different ways. Right. Um and l- let me say I don't think that the jury is fully in yet about Ronda Rousey's marketability like uh the tenor of this email which is a, a great email and frankly strong emails from everyone this week. We got a really g- good crop of emails but everybody brought their A game. The the tenor of this email is sort of like Ronda Rousey hasn't turned into the big star that everyone thought sh- she would be. And you know maybe that's sort of true but I also don't think that we've had like conclusive proof that she's not a draw. I think that she suffers from what you were just talking about kind of a lack of competition and I I guess my last point on the subject would be that that's assuming well not assuming but let's you know for argument's sake saying Conor McGregor comes out of this Jose Aldo fight with the title like he's not going to have that problem like there's going to be competition in the featherweight division from all sides and honestly uh, you know if you do have a new champ there uh, you could have, you know, one of the more exciting divisions in the sport, I think, just because there would be so many guys lining up to fight McGregor and they would all be, you know, reasonably competitive fights. Yeah. No. And, and I think that that is a, a big difference. Like maybe that's just one of the things we've talked before that the women's game in a lot of ways still seems a little bit behind the men's game and that, you know, a fighter like Rousey can just come in there and absolutely dominate and doesn't have anybody out there to push her. And maybe that'll just take time. You know, if somebody like Holly Holm could stay healthy and, and, you know, there's some excitement out there. People are waiting for somebody to, to pick up that mantle and be a, a tough challenger for Ronda Rousey. But right now you look around and you just don't see it. Next question comes from Mark Featherstone. He writes, is it just me or is it hard to get excited by whatever Darth Vader does next? I see a potential matchup with Rashad looking very similar to this weekend's fight, except maybe with him on the losing end of the decision. Mark, it is not just you, buddy. Uh, I think that Ryan Bader versus Phil Davis was voted the most likely to come out and stink up the joint at UFC on Fox 14. And boy, they pretty much lived up to our expectations in that department. Uh, Ryan Bader wins the split decision but it was a close fight, a hard fight to to call, uh, and the kind of fight where two pretty talented grapplers keep it on the feet most of the time and, and engage in what appears to be a 15-minute sparring match uh, and, frankly, was hard to pick a winner in just because there wasn't a lot of tremendously substantive action, yeah. I guess you would say. Uh, and really, like, 
I think there was a time when both Phil Davis and Ryan Bader were considered pretty good prospects in this sport. I guess da- uh, Bader has won four in a row now, so you gotta got to give him credit for that. And now they have to find him maybe somebody in the top five to fight, which is kind of a scary proposition. But both those guys, to me at this point, seem like, you know, they're just not going to cross the line and be big time factors, even in the shallow light heavyweight division, uh, which is uh, kind of a shame, I think, because they both had skills that I thought at one point really could translate to success. I think it's more of a shame for Phil Davis. And I think we would be feeling this way about him, even if he had won, because I mean, that, that one was close enough that he could have conceivably won that decision. And for one thing, like the action would just left us all kind of apathetic. I think as to who was going to win. Uh, so nobody would have been totally outraged if Phil Davis has got his hand raised there. Uh, but I think the, the thing is with Ryan Bader, I feel like we kind of at least felt like we saw the ceiling, uh, a while ago. I don't know if it was, you know, him just getting absolutely schooled by John Jones or, or, or whatever. But I think with Phil Davis, people were looking at his college wrestling credentials and thinking like, well, give him time. Give him a little bit of time to get comfortable here, uh, figure out the, the MMA game, round out his, his skills a little bit, and then who knows? Cause remember, there was a time, I remember back at that, when he fought Little Nog in Seattle and people were talking about, oh, well, Phil Davis is the next John Jones. Right, Phil Davis yeah. and John Jones, that's gonna, you know, that's an inevitable matchup. Uh, and, you know, these last few fights, especially, you just, you look at him and you're thinking, you're waiting for him to jump up to that next level and now we're starting to feel like it's never going to happen. Like it just doesn't seem like the sense of urgency when he fights doesn't seem to be there. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that you actually, I mean, you hate to go play Monday morning quarterback on, on some of the, the actual strategy he used in the fight, but you see him a lot like shooting for takedowns out in open space, which I mean, I guess you come from a wrestling background and you think that that's your game. But for one thing, that doesn't work that well in MMA. Even if you're a really good wrestler, I mean, GSP can make that work. But, like, you see most guys get takedowns now off the fence. Like, that's just yeah. how it happens. And and to shoot in open space, especially against another guy who has a wrestling background, like, you're already lowering your chances of success there. And he did it over and over again and couldn't get that takedown. Uh, and then doesn't really have anything super scary on his feet. Like, the best thing he can really hope to do is to stay busy and impress the judges with just work rate. And, you know, once you start getting higher up in the division, man, that's just not going to be enough. Yeah, I would also add that I think, even though maybe this sounds funny to say, but uh, I think both Phil Davis and Ryan Bader, like, were hurt from a perception standpoint, just because they both look so good getting off the bus. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Phil Davis is a physical specimen looks like a goddamn bug or something when he's up on the weigh in scale, just like he looks like an alien. He doesn't look like a, a, a normal human. He looks like a 1950s, like comic strip of a strong man. Yeah. And then Ryan Bader, like, uh, he's always in, in great shape. And I don't know that it comes through if you see him on, on television, but when you see him in person, he is a hulking giant of a man. And, uh, they both uh, looked like they fit the bill, kind of, frankly. And then it, it uh, hasn't really worked out in terms of like producing either of them at the at the top levels of the division. Uh, next question this week comes from Trevor Lode, and he writes, The UFC has signed Crow Cop! Exclamation point. Is this another move toward the UFC's 2015, quote-unquote, ah, fuck it, matchmaking mentality <laughs> that you guys have been talking about? Or is this that the UFC realizes that there are only 30 to 40 men on the planet who actually fight at a decent level at the heavyweight class? I'm going to say a little of both. And, uh, you know, the original signing of Crow Cop, I felt like, was uh, shocking. 
and didn't make any sense at all. But then the very next week, kind of the UFC announced that they're going to Krakow, Poland to do a, uh, a show over there, uh, which frankly, I can't wait for that to happen. So we can both say Krakow on the show. Uh, but he's going to fight Gabe Gonzaga in a rematch in the main event of doing the, it again, brother uh, of the show in Krakow. So, uh, <laughs> When you view it through that lens, it makes a little bit more sense, right? Yeah, but come on, like let's let's not overlook the Bellator aspect of this signing. I think that there's a couple different ways to look at the Bellator aspect. For one thing, Bellator had been talking about signing Crow Cop, you know, and you can think you can already look ahead to what Bellator might have been thinking there. You sign Crow Cop, you already signed Tito Ortiz, fucking Kimbo Slice, Stefan Bonner, like all those old guys. You throw him in the mix there, and you can just you know, kind of swirl it around and, and match them up and kind of this fun old timers division where at least people know who the hell these guys are. And the UFC says, you know what? Nope. Dibs. We got this guy. And for one thing, it just keeps Bellator from being able to use him. But also I think that I, we have to admit that the UFC is learning from what Bellator proved with the Tito Ortiz, Stefan Bonner thing, which is that name value still counts for an awful lot, even if you don't have a whole lot left in the tank at this point in your career. Because we mocked the Tito Ortiz, Stefan Bonner stuff, and then you see the ratings numbers, and you're like, oh, holy shit, like... People still know who they are. They'll still tune in for somebody if they know their name. That still counts for a whole hell of a lot. Like we said before, and like you wrote in one of your columns that, you know, the past stardom is still the best predictor, predictor, predictor of, you know, future success as far as getting people to turn in, tune in and watch you. So I think the UFC has realized like, all right, that's, that's true. Like you can't just put interchangeable dudes on from the prelims on there and expect everybody to tune in in big numbers. You're better off getting somebody who is a known name, even if they can't fight that well anymore, uh, as far as, you know, attracting viewers that works better. Yeah. It's a the dangerous f- lesson for everybody to learn. No, I, I was think. just going to say the fact that Tito Ortiz versus Stefan Bonner kind of changed everything in terms of what it means to be a viable MMA fighter really sucks. Like that, that's a, that's a harsh lesson and, uh, one that I think we would have been better off having left unlearnt with a T on the end of it. Uh, and then like he'll, he'll, he'll lose to Gabriel Gonzaga, I would think. And, uh, I frankly would have been more excited about seeing him fight. Kimbo Slice and Bellator, like put that on Spike TV, man. I'm watching. Exactly, and the UFC knows that you're watching. So, nope, snatch him up, send him to Krakow, Krakow. Uh, to do it again, brother, with Gabriel Gonzaga. And I'm just gonna say, I, I put this on Twitter, and I'm gonna give this one free to the UFC tagline for this fight. Wish you would try that shit again. And you know, outside possibility, maybe we're just warehousing guys Brock can beat up when he comes back. Who knows? After Mania. Who knows? Well, that's going to do it for this week's uh, listener mail. If you have a question, comment, or concern you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to take a fun look at the week's MMA stories that we miss from Monday to Monday between the times that we are recording the podcast. You'll like it. Put your email in there, uh, and we'll send that to you every Friday morning. You can enjoy it with your cornflakes. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, I have to admit, I'm kind of pissed because it seems like pretty soon Anthony Johnson is going to come out with an instructional video called How to Beat Dundasso. Oh, no. Uh, this guy, he's the one guy you don't want to poke in the eye, it Apparently, turns out. yeah. Because if you do that in your Kevin Burns years ago, he's going to arrange to have a rematch where he can kick you in your damn head and knock you out. And if you are Alexander Gustafson, he's going to take advantage of the restart to slip past your push kick. Apparently, when he hears your corner call for it, uh, which I didn't realize, but we got some emails alleging that this week. Uh, and then a punch slash headbutt you right in the face. And uh, a minute or so later, he's the number one contender and you are, are crying and leaving the octagon. Let's talk about that headbutt issue because i feel like it's starting to come up more and more now that everybody is going back well we, we love a controversy yes, around these do. parts we got to have something we can talk about on the social media all week i mean th- there does seem to be what i will call a clash of heads i think it's kind of uh unfair to label it like a headbutt like uh you know he's doing some evander holyfield stuff i think when you just look at the the height disparity the that's going to be a danger. Like a guy coming in with that overhand right the way uh, Anthony Johnson does and uh, Gustafson being like a little bit taller and he's going to try to duck his head to get down out of the way of the punch. I mean, when they come together, their heads are just kind of going to be at that point. And that's what I remember Tim Kennedy talking about how that was a problem when he fought, uh, which Gracie was it that he fought? The the big tall one. I can't remember what his first name Howard. was. Sure. Howie Gracie. <laughs> Howie Gracie. Uh, and the, the referee kept saying to him, uh, I think it was Kim Winslow who was the referee and she kept saying, watch your heads in there. And he was like, look at where our heads are. Like when we come together to fight, our heads are kind of at this point where the top of my head looks like it's going to nail him in the chin. And that's just how it is. Uh, and I think it's kind of the similar thing. Like there, there was a clash of heads, but I don't think you can really blame Anthony Johnson for it. I mean, he was coming in there trying to land a punch, right? Yeah. I'm not really worried about it, to be honest with you. I think that the, the punch did the majority of the damage when he, he, the punch clearly lands first when you see both angles of, of the, of the punch. And like, I'm not going to undermine the man's victory by spending a lot of time talking about head butts and whatnot. Uh, I believe that's a, that's a granular issue. Ben. Oh, okay. The, the head Way to go. Uh, let's talk about the big issues here. Anthony Johnson goes over to Sweden, stays up all night for a week, uh, fights Alexander Gustafsson at what, like two, three o'clock in the morning? Something like that. And, uh, walks out of there with another piece to the puzzle, uh, showing us that he is in fact a pretty good light heavyweight mixed martial arts fighter. Uh, he's eight and oh now, including one. Uh, appearance at heavyweight since he decided to stop trying to make weight at 185 or 170, committed himself full time to 205. He's nine and zero all the way around since uh, his fateful loss to what was it, Vitor Belfort? Is that the one that got him fired? Yeah, yeah, he lost to Vitor Belfort way back in January of 2012. He's pretty much been on a tear ever since then. Uh, clearly, he has dynamite in his fists, and now uh, he's gonna fight. The, the light heavyweight champion, John Jones, we think sometime this summer, barring injury or any other kind of, uh, setback. And, uh, to me, it shapes up as a super, super interesting fight that maybe none of us really saw coming before like a year ago, cause Anthony Johnson wasn't even in the damn UFC at the time. Uh, but this to me is kind of a compelling matchup because while John Jones is probably the overall more rounded and, and better MMA fighter, he's shown, I think, against Daniel Cormier and against, 
uh, Alexander Gustafson that like he can get punched in the face and getting punched in the face by Anthony Johnson at this point seems like a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, that is the best thing you have to think that this is going to be competitive, right? Is because you have uh, one thing that you, you say like John Jones has shown he can be punched in the face. He's also shown that he, you can't punch him in the face hard enough to really do a whole lot to him, you know? And so uh, then you take Alexander Gustafson who, prior to this had kind of looked the same. It looked like a guy where he has a really good chin. You can you can hit him with a hard shot and he's not going anywhere. And then you put him up against Anthony Johnson where it turns out, uh oh, against this guy, maybe he is going down. And so then you kind of just try to work some transitive property thing and say, well, if it can happen to Gustafson, then it can happen to Jones. There you go. And I mean, but that's still the best selling point you have for this fight because I still think that John Jones in all ways should beat Anthony Johnson. Like that should not be a terribly tough fight for John Jones. All Anthony Johnson has there is, you know, the the promise of sheer power to go in there and lay one on John Jones that'll hurt him. But I mean, we've been selling fights that way for a long, long time, have we not? I mean, since the since the Dave, days of David Tua uh showing up there in, in heavyweight boxing uh title fights, saying, like, well, who knows? Who knows? Maybe he lands one big punch and everything changes. I don't know. I don't see it, but it is it is interesting. Yeah, I think it stands to be more interesting than than maybe you're giving it giving it credit for. I don't uh, come on, but come on. What do you think the odds are going to be uh, for this one when they get in there together? I, well, I mean, what are the good the odds when John Jones fights anybody? But I I think it's I think it's an interesting fight. It's definitely a fight that I'm way more excited to watch than John Jones against Alexander Gustafson too. Uh, really? Just, yeah, for sure. Well, Absolutely. I mean, now, but before this fight, I would have said, though, that that was the most interesting fight you could make for John Jones right now, just because of how, how close the first one was, those, those questions we had about, did John Jones train hard enough? Is his head together now enough? I mean, now I think the, one of the most interesting parts about seeing him fight Anthony Johnson is that Anthony Johnson looks like somebody where you could see John Jones looking at film of him and being like, got this uh and maybe partying and and totally being not a cocaine addict uh, during training camp and screwing around and getting into a, a similar situation again where he takes him too lightly and something bad happens i i don't think that there was any danger that he was going to do that a second time against alexander gustafson yeah no i think you're underestimating anthony johnson and overestimating how interesting a john jones and uh gustafson rematch would be that could be in my mind's eye i think john jones just smokes Gustafson in a rematch because of the way that John Jones's mind works. And that is that, you know, everyone sat around for months talking about how he got this kind of like gift decision and, and, uh, Alexander Gustafson pushed him to the brink, et cetera, et cetera. There's just no way he doesn't come into a rematch with Alexander Gustafson in anything else, but the best shape, best preparedness that we've ever seen John Jones. Right. Uh, I don't think their rematch would be as competitive as the first one. Anthony Johnson, I don't know. Like, uh, like I said at the top of the, of the round, it's, it seems like John Jones is the better MMA fighter, which you can say about almost everyone in the world when you compare them to John Jones. But man, Anthony Johnson appears to punch people super hard. And, uh, that can be a pretty good equalizer when when you just got those tiny little gloves on. Um, but let's talk real quick about Anthony Johnson before we have to move on to our to our next round. Uh, conflicted about the rise of Anthony Johnson. Absolutely, I, I am a little bit uh, because on the surface, obviously Anthony Johnson seems so goddamn nice all the time, and but then you have these. Uh, 
uh, domestic violence cases kind of hanging around in his background where he got suspended late 2014 because uh, the mother of his children, according to a report from Brent Brookhouse, who now works over at MMA Junkie, uh, said that she had filed for a restraining order against him. That happened in September. He got suspended in November. The, the petition for the restraining order was dropped, so the UFC reinstated Anthony Johnson. But that's not Anthony Johnson's only domestic violence complaint no. against him. There's at least one other one from 2009 where uh, I believe he pled like no contest to that. So like some personal issues hanging around for Anthony Johnson, which I think kind of undermine what would otherwise be a totally feel good story to have this guy come back to the UFC and, and like prove to be a top contender. Yeah. Hard to feel good about it. Uh, you know, because yeah, like you said, you, you know, you, you look at just the fighting side of it, uh, and you think like, all right, yeah, great. You know, he, he went from cautionary tale to being back there and, and showing that never give up, all that kind of other stuff. But then, man, I, people want to make a big deal about John Jones, you know, using cocaine or something during his training camp. I don't really care that much about that. I mean, it's troublesome if it's a sign that he has a, a problem, uh, or like his personal life is out of control and he needs to get those issues solved and it's, it's dangerous for his health if he's going to be fighting people in a cage and, and using cocaine in his free time. All that stuff, but fine. I don't care that much about that. This I care a lot about. Uh, a, a pro fighter who is, you know, not once, but, you know, by two different women at least accused of domestic violence. That is some serious shit, man. That is some repugnant shit. Uh, and not something that you can really just forget about. And I don't know. It's gonna, it's gonna be tough, I think, if, imagine if he becomes your UFC light heavyweight champ and everybody, you know, they're gonna cram that storyline down your throat that, oh, hey, this guy came from being cut to coming back in the UFC and, and going all the way to the top. And we're all just going to what? Pretend that we've forgotten about that or pretend like, oh, hey, uh, stuff got dropped. Therefore, we're cool. I don't know, man. Yeah, I don't feel totally comfortable with that. It's going to be it's going to be a weird situation that we're going to have to reconcile, in, at least in those months leading up to the fight. Uh, before we move on, let's talk briefly about John Jones's internet troll game, which is strong. Uh, he makes fun of Phil Davis on this night, saying that he needs a new nickname because he doesn't seem that wonderful. Uh, he mocks Alexander Gustafson, which, again, per my earlier point about how his mind works, uh, and seems really excited to fight Anthony Johnson, at least, uh, in his, you know, in the original tweet. Uh, he puts up his own light heavyweight top five list, which I thought was. Everybody loves a top five, which right? I, which I thought was, was pretty awesome, but. Did he like, do like his favorite rappers after that and also <laughs> list himself first? Uh, the most unseemly thing was where he like, <laughs> he said he wasn't impressed with, uh, Alexander Gustafson's performance, like after he obviously suffers this crushing loss. Uh, what's John Jones doing on the internets? Uh, is he just reinforced? Is he playing this role now or is he like, I mean, how great would it have been to see him then do top five civil war generals? <laughs> no, I mean, he knows, he knows what he's doing there with his, his social media game. Like the whole thing about, you know, he's going to tweet some stuff to kick Gustafson when he's down and then immediately delete it. He knows exactly how people are going to respond to that. Uh, and he's just, he's just playing it. And I, I think that, uh, if anything, it's good to see like, all right. John Jones must be doing, if not fine, then at least the same as he always was because he's back to his old tricks here. And people love it, man. People eat that stuff up. I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't see, uh, see any way you don't at least somehow kind of enjoy that, even if what you enjoy is totally hating it. Number three, George McClellan. Number two, Ulysses S. Grant. Number one, Sherman. What do you think? So where's Stonewall Jackson? Where, where's he fitting in? Well, I mean, you're kind of talking about the other side there. I'm just. <laughs> but it's such an awesome name. Come on, man. 
I propose to move immediately upon your works. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. Uh, Sir Nigel Longstock's here. We're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am all fucked up. Yeah, what happened to you? It's been a while. Yes, since last we spoke, my arm has been out of the socket and my butthole has been to California and I'm just generally ruined by circumstance. You know, I was saying just before you got here to Chad, I hope we can get through this one without hearing anything about Sir Nigel's butthole. Chad said, ain't no way, and I guess Chad's right again. I'll tell the world, sir. <laughs> well, uh, I suppose, you know, you had a long time to think about it here, and you brought us some pretty good tweets, I'm sure. Is there a theme this week? Yes, sir, there is. The theme is, let's not tweet things we can't take back. <laughs> okay, could be the theme for any week, but all right, we're, we're ready when you are. <clears throat> Let us begin. Mame mimo moo. Tweet the first. Not a bad stoppage. The refs are so sloppy. If the ref didn't tackle Musasi, he would have kept that top position. Dan would have got smashed. So can I take it from your tone that it started out normal and then went to all caps? Uh, it goes to all caps for so sloppy. And then the rest was my artistic license, sir. Okay, so only so sloppy is in caps. Correct. Chad, you got any guesses here? God, I, I feel rusty. We haven't done this since, I mean, not to keep the talk yeah. of Sir Nigel's butthole up, but I feel rusty. Uh, I'm going to go, because of the all caps, I'm going to go with uh, UFC executive and multi-millionaire Dana White. Huh, okay. Um, feels like a bisping to me. Really? All caps? You know, for a little bit, just for a little bit. If it, the whole thing was all caps, I'd say no, That's bisping's not, that's not his style. But uh, this one, I don't know. I don't know. And maybe if there's anybody who'd out there who would want to not be a generous observer there for Dan Henderson, wouldn't it be Michael Bisping? Well, good point. Good point. Sir Nigel? Both fine guesses, but the caps tell the tale. It is Dana White. Damn it. Dana White, I believe. <laughs> Pronunciation. You believe wrong. White. <clears throat> tweet the second. Uh, this tweet contains a visual element that I will describe at the end. Well, that'd be nice. <clears throat> yeah, it's always fun. Tweet the second. My gorgeous daughter, Tieta, modeling for Acacia Swimwear. Photograph of a five-year-old wearing a bikini. Can you spell the child's name? Yes, Tieta, T-E-A-T-A. I assume she is named after the theater. <laughs> wow, that's a tough one, man. Uh, Anthony Pettis? He has kids, right? Uh, what does it? What? Does he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sure he's got a guy for that. Um, I'm going to go, I guess, uh, fighter and noted rap singer John Moraga. Oh, okay. Well, both fine guesses, both known kid havers, and both wrong. It is Kendall Grove. Oh. Should have asked for uh, language of origin there. Yeah, that, that was clearly our mistake there. Constantly, constantly posting pictures of his kids on Twitter. He's got some sick attachment to them. <laughs> Tweet the third. 
Bike Lifestyle, hey! Bike Estilo de Vida, hey! First person video of riding a bicycle through Las Vegas. Wait, what the fuck? What did you say there in the middle? Bike Lifestyle, hey! Bike Estilo de la Vida, hey! It's Portuguese. Vanderlei Silva? That's a good guess. Uh, he may be the only Brazilian I know who lives in Las Vegas. Uh, it's good. Jose Aldo. Maybe he traded in the motorcycle for a uh, bicycle. Man, if they catch that motherfucker riding around on the Vegas Strip on a bicycle now and he's got that Conor McGregor fight to think about it, they will wrap him in bubble wrap and stick him under a bed somewhere until it's time to fight. Just make him have a scared, straight conversation with Frank Mir. <laughs> both fine guesses, both victims of accidents, only one correct, Vanderlei Silva. Boom! Ah, wearing headphones, I might add, while he rides his bicycle through an urban center. Yeah, I'm glad to see he's keeping busy. Hey! Hey! <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. This also has a visual element. It's a whole God damn it. that we didn't mention. Mm. Tweet, <laughs> tweet the fourth. Drying herbs is an easy way to preserve fresh herbs with minimal loss of flavor and quality. Photograph of various herbs. <laughs> Can you describe the herbs in more detail? <laughs> they are, in fact, kitchen herbs, sir. I inspected them closely, and they are not the fun kind. <sighs> Feels like a rich Franklin to me. Yeah, that I was going to go Rich Franklin. That has to be Rich Franklin Franklin, or the other Rich Franklin, who I will guess, Randy Couture. Both fine guesses, both grounded in Rich Franklin, and both wrong. Oh. It is Nick Diaz. What? what? Yes, apparently developing a sense of humor. Is there some? Is this one of those things like where the the picture of the herbs was posted to score or something, so he can get paid just because everybody had to click the link to find out if they're in fact real herbs? That could be. That could be. But it's just you know, it looks like a stock photo of lavender on a clothesline. <laughs> I already feel like we've deviated wildly away from the theme. Yes, the it's true. We did drift some. Hey. hey, tweet the fifth. I hate Las Vegas. That's it, huh? That's it. Okay, I'm gonna now. I'm gonna say that's Michael Bisping, because I know that he hates Las Vegas. Oh wow! So you are you're just actually using deductive reasoning. That and my other the other part of my deductive reasoning is you know Sir Nigel wants to do that voice. It's been too long. <laughs> it has been far too long. So that's yeah. I can't argue with that. I'm gonna go uh, Dennis Hallman. Huh? Okay. I bet he does hate Las Vegas. Both fine guesses, both grounded in the psychology of the individual, and both wrong. It is Phil Baroni. Oh, the poet. Who claiming, lives in Las Vegas. Yes, claiming to hate it, even though I assume he was not at the Spearmint Rhino at this time. <laughs> he must have been stuck in traffic on his way home from the Spearmint Rhino. That seems probable. That's why He's I hate it. sobering up so fast, I can't believe it. Well, that was almost fun. Sir Nigel, what do you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished wrapping an interesting project about a group of misfit camp counselors trying to get laid during a season of brutal serial murderers. I see him. What's it called? It's called Wet Hot American Summer of Sam. And what role do you play? I play talking dog, sir. Well, I look forward to that. That was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. <laughs>
Well, Chad, let's talk for a second about Daniel Jeffrey Henderson, aged 44, who suffered another defeat in the octagon. This one, you know, not without some questions about the stoppage, but let's talk about what we really saw there, which is a pretty short fight where Dan Henderson you know, suffered a cut around his left eye that he said left him unable to see, made him a little more aggressive because he saw your, your boy Sweet and Sassy, the young vagabond, Gegard Mousasi, pointing at it, thought, hey, maybe this thing's about to be stopped. So he goes charging in, takes a right hand that glances up high off of his head, and then just kind of loses his equilibrium and goes tumbling back. I got to say, there was a moment when that happened right there when he tumbles back up against the fence where I thought, ah, uh, shit, it's finally happened. Dan Henderson is old for good. Yeah. Uh, I thought that while the Dan Henderson wasn't going to win this fight, I thought that this fight had a high probability of not being that ugly because I would have been really worried about Dan Henderson if he was fighting somebody <laughs> that, uh, that, do you need some water or something? I'm okay. All right. I'm coming Just off checking. of sickness here, all right? Kinda coughing your way through this episode just back up off me I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of stuff i know you are a lot of health issues yeah uh this camp has been fraught with peril i would have been a little bit more worried if dan henderson was fighting like a yoel romero or a uh, uh even a luke rockhold type like somebody that i thought could hurt him bad in there i kind of expected musasi to pick him apart but maybe win a decision yeah so the way that he got stopped quickly in that first round was a little bit uh unnerving uh and some people talked about maybe an early stoppage and and there was a situation where it looked like maybe the ref was a little out of position so that it looked like Musasi landed a left hook uh that actually missed while Dan Henderson was falling back and kind of hitting his head against the cage but I'm not going to quibble too much with the stoppage you don't want to see the 44 year old man take too many of those coffin nails up against the uh up against the fence uh, and you know, I know that we're all reluctant to talk about when guys should retire and stuff like that, but Dan Henderson is 44. He's one of the greatest American mixed martial artists of all time. As I said on Twitter, I hope the guy never pays for another drink again in his life. Uh, he's got kind of a cowboy cool that we all like. Uh, and, uh, so you don't want to see anything really bad happen to Dan Henderson. Um, but I don't really feel the need to see him fighting, uh, top level middleweights or light heavyweights anymore. I don't think. Yeah. And the tough thing for him now was like when you hear him in interviews still, like he, you can tell he's long past being sick of having us ask him how much longer, how much longer. Like he's not even really thinking about that. And he still talks about like, well, my goal is to get that title, you know, the UFC titles thing that he, he hasn't had. Look, that's not going to happen, man. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, even if he were to, to win his way into a contender spot, I mean, who, what champion out there does Dan Henderson beat right now? That's, let's just say it, man, you're not going to be a UFC champion and that's fine. I mean, it's easy for us to say that because it's not our life and our accomplishments that we're thinking about, but he, he doesn't need that as far as I'm concerned. So what are you fighting for at that point? A few more paychecks? Like it, you're right that it doesn't seem worth it. It also doesn't seem like you're going to convince Dan Henderson of that because you hear the way he talked after this one saying, Oh, I trained smart. I'm not worried about brain trauma. Well, shit, man, nobody really is worried about brain trauma until something terrible happens to him. Right? Yeah. Uh, and you're you're right that that man. It's like every time I start talking, it's like you manage to hold those coughs in while you're while you're doing your thing. Yeah. Hey, what do you want from me, man? I'm I just I've been sick. I got a damn bandage on my arm. I'm here doing the damn thing. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well, I'll put you in for the podcast medal of honor for next. <laughs> there you go again. Like every time. I can't help. Oh, I think you're just trolling me at this point. Uh 
Now I've totally lost track of what we were talking about. You don't, uh, you don't want to see bad things happen to Dan Henderson. And while it's, it's easy for us to say it's time to walk away, man, Dan Henderson could segue into being such a sweet, like legend ambassador for the sport, uh, type figure. Like everybody likes Dan Henderson, man. Like just, you know, get, make him the vice president of Northern California operations and let him, uh, jump on his trampoline and push his barbecue across the street over there in Temecula. You know Temecula is like by San Diego, right? It's not Northern California. It's it's all Greek to me. Yes, man. yes, it is. You know the thing that I kept thinking about. Did you happen to see the uh, the real sports uh, that they just had, where they check in with the 1985 Chicago Bears, no. arguably the greatest NFL? It's a really good real sports. I think it's the most recent one. Um, a lot of them are not doing great, man. You know, uh, a lot of them are dealing with some some brain health stuff coming on. Jim McMahon, not doing great. Richard Dent, not doing great. And some of them are fine. Like, you just don't know how that stuff is going to work out. But everybody, everybody wants to say, I feel fine. I trade yeah. smart. Yeah, and Dan Henderson has been in some wars, too. Uh, <coughs> let's talk a little bit about Gegard Mousasi. Um, you know, obviously now he beats Dan Henderson to put some distance between himself and uh, his loss back in September of 2014 to to Jacare Souza. So he's he's two and two now in his last four uh, with losses to Jacare and Leota Machida. Um, but but you know in his last two vic- victories at least over Mark Munoz and then the one over Henderson, it kind of seems like he's found. Uh, I don't know if you want to say a mean streak because it doesn't seem that way, but at least he's he's out there stopping guys with a little bit more urgency than maybe what we uh, saw from him in the past. Um, the middleweight division clearly is just stacked with murderers. Uh, he's still got Jacare, Machida, Belfort, Rockhole, Romero, Tim Kennedy all in front of him, not to mention Anderson Silva in the official middleweight rankings. What kind of role does he have now in the middleweight division? I believe he's only 28 years old. Where is he going uh, how does how does Musasi fit into what is an already pretty crowded 185 pound title picture? You know, to be honest, I was a little bit concerned, if anything, about his lack of a mean streak, even in this one. You know, there was that moment where he said that he had Henderson down. You can see it where he's cocking back to throw another right once Henderson's down. He and he follows him down there, and he doesn't throw it. You know, and I don't. Maybe I'm making too much out of it because of the the criticisms that have been leveled at him in the past. That he just doesn't seem to have that that extra bit of fire. That he seems physically gifted and uh, doesn't have that that thing Dan Henderson has that makes him drop Bisping and then launch himself into the air to come down on him uh, with his forearm. But you know that was that was a moment where you can see that there's an opportunity for him to hit him one more and remove all doubt. And then he doesn't do it, and it says afterwards, "Well, I didn't want to hit him there. I thought he was already out." And then when I saw the ref wasn't going to stop it, then I went ahead and hit him with the left. And you wonder like. You know, you get away with that against Dan Henderson. If is that the kind of thing that's going to keep him from getting to that next level? Yeah, well, he needs to go out and prove it against the top middleweight too. You you go back over his most recent wins. You got Henderson, Munoz. Before that, it's Alir Latifi, Mike Kyle, Ovin Saint Pru back in the formative years. I know you're not talking about the bricklayer Alir Latifi. Uh, and then that you know that's pretty much his most recent strike force slash UFC career. So like we haven't seen Musasi go out and get a win over. Uh, somebody that you would consider, you know, a, a, a top 10 maybe or, or top five middleweight. So he's still got some stuff to prove. Luckily <clears throat> for him, uh, there is a plethora of guys against which he can prove it. Uh, at least he, he'll probably get that opportunity coming up soon. Um, do you want to do, are you fucking kidding me? 
Sure. Do you have the strength? Let's see. To do that? Let's Why don't you go out. first? So then you can plug yourself into the dialysis machine while I do mine. <laughs> well, Chad, I know you don't even bother watching prelims anymore, but if you had, you would have seen uh, in the light heavyweight fight between Nikita Krylov of the Ukraine against Stanislav Nedkov, Nikita Krylov... I'm going to say brought some dude that he met at a nightclub uh-huh. yeah. uh, somewhere yes. in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Uh, and that dude acted awesome the entire time. For one thing, he shows up there looking like a member of the flock of seagulls or some shit. <coughs> at least we know where the cocaine is coming from now. Am I right? Posing for selfies, picking his nose in the background. Are you fucking kidding me? Most awesome corner man ever? Ever? Ever. Forever, ever. <coughs> Well, Ben, I noticed this during the broadcast and I, I, I kind of wondered about it. And then we got a couple of emails about it this week to the podcast. I don't know if you noticed this, but the UFC had two separate English language broadcast teams. I saw your boy Dan Hardy there on hand for this event in Sweden where English is widely spoken. Uh, what the serious fuck, dude? Like, why do we need? Two English language broadcast teams. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, I, I, I know that there must be a legitimate explanation, but I've been racking my brain for it. And one was American English, one was British English. That could be. Do you think that the, the people of the, the fictional continent of Europe, uh, just wouldn't understand the, our Yankee jargon? They needed to hear somebody pronounce center as if it was spelled R-E. Well, yeah, and I mean, I guess uh, Dan Hardy and the other fellow who does the uh, what's that guy's name? John Gooden. John Gooden. Uh, they could they could probably handle that for you. Still, man, weird, very weird thing when you got Rogan and 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 Goldie sitting across the cage, also doing a broadcast uh, in the English language. And then backstage, you got uh, Gareth Davies showing up dressed like a groovy mortician, like he yanked the curtains off the wall in some kind of weird Adams family themed hotel and put them on a sports coat. Yeah, the groovy mortician, a good description of Gareth A. Davies' style. Previously not allowed to be on television because the the like tinkling of his wallet chain disrupts the, the microphones, <laughs> I think. Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, I guess we better try to claw our way through this third round so then you can go and curl up under a piece of cardboard somewhere and die. Uh, coming up this weekend at UFC 183, you got your main event pitting the greatest mixed martial arts fighter of all time in Anderson Silva against a welterweight, Nick Diaz. Uh, this strikes me as a thing that should be kind of a landmark event and might have been a landmark event if not for the UFC's kind of crowded event schedule where you get John Jones against Daniel Cormier a couple weeks ago and then you get Conor McGregor coming in and then you get the UFC on Fox show with the number one contender 205 pound fight that Anthony Johnson wins uh, as kind of a two to one underdog kind of feels like UFC 183 Anderson Silva Nick Diaz is a little bit of an afterthought to me even though they uh, they turned up the volume on the on the promos this week on Fox is this fight getting the respect that it deserves or the 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 attention that it deserves really I would have made the the argument that 
this last weekend's UFC on Fox event, that one seemed to get short shrift there. That that one was in danger of being ignored or underappreciated because the UFC put so much into promoting Conor McGregor. Uh, and then, you know, obviously, since this is a pay-per-view and that's where the, the financial bread is buttered still for the UFC, uh, it was looking ahead to this one for the past couple of weeks. So I don't know. I mean, I think that when you consider what this fight is, where it's, you know, former middleweight champion and great Anderson Silva, who now seems like possibly past his prime, coming off of horrific injury against a guy a weight class below who he should probably just absolutely beat up, but who is still an enigmatic and fascinating figure to fight fans. I don't know. It seems like this one got a, a bigger push than what the stakes of the fight actually are. But this is the return of Anderson Silva, the greatest of all time, coming back from a career-threatening injury, fighting, you know, firebrand bad boy and fan favorite Nick Diaz, enormous pay-per-view draw, the guy who's really only still around because, as he says, the UFC needs real fighters. I think that you can make a valid argument that uh, the Rumble Johnson-Alexander uh, Gustafson fight got overlooked a little bit because of, of uh, Conor McGregor, but, like, this, this should be a big deal. This is... Uh, this is one for the ages, a super fight worth screaming about well, or something. What, I don't know. But they've been screaming about it. I don't know what else you want. And it's the Super Bowl weekend car. It's always a big one. I mean, I, th- I feel like we've had a fair amount of screaming here. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it's, I'm probably off base if I appeal for more screaming. <laughs> That's not necessarily the direction we want to go in this sport. Uh, does Nick Diaz have a chance in, in the blue hell here? Do we have the odds? Does anybody have the odds in front of them? Do I'll, we know? I'll look up the odds. You know... I think that if we're being honest here, I'm not going to say Nick Diaz's only chance because Nick Diaz is a tough motherfucker, man. So who knows? Who knows what he can do out there? You never want to count him out. But isn't his best chance that Anderson Silva just doesn't have it anymore? That Anderson Silva's, you know, finally gotten too old to be great or is not as recovered from the injury as he needs to be or what or, you know just will be rusty and just won't be Anderson Silva well I think we don't need to worry about him being recovered because I've seen a lot of slightly out of focus Instagram videos of I him walking have. down stairs and and uh you know, knocking guys out in training, quote unquote, uh, that make him look like he's just fine. I think now you, I think that, you know, all kidding aside, you hit on kind of a, an interesting theme for this fight. Uh, and that is that, it, you, you know, depending on how things go, I don't necessarily want to prognosticate the whole thing, but I feel like a Nick Diaz victory kind of would be a signpost on the road that, that Anderson Silva is, you know, his best days are definitely ahead of him and, and maybe that, that, uh, He's not going to fight his way through that 15 fight contract that he recently signed with the UFC Um, because, you know, we've seen in the past Nick Diaz certainly doesn't mind getting punched in the face. And uh, every time Anderson Silva has fought a guy who has a style similar to that, it's turned out pretty bad for the other guy. So you think that that just in terms of a matchup of styles, this would really favor Anderson Silva, who's obviously a bigger guy and, you know, a, a pinpoint dangerous knockout artist. Uh, here's a question that I was wondering about, though, this week. Do you think Nick Diaz would have a chance if he manages to get this one to the ground? You know, I was wondering that same thing. That, you know, hey, what about uh, if Nick Diaz uh, remembers that he can go in there and use some jujitsu, right? Like, that would be kind of awesome. Uh, hey, maybe flying heel hook, uh, just, you know, showing you did your scouting report on Anderson Silva. I don't know. That'd be kind of cool. Uh, I think the one of the big appeals of this fight is, like you said, 
when Anderson Silva tends to fight guys who don't mind getting hit in the face and who are just, you know, tough guys who can take a shot, especially guys who, who really kind of want to box and are a little bit more one dimensional with their, their game, he tends to just beat the hell out of them. But then Nick Diaz is the kind of guy who, even when you can hit him and, and, you know, mess his face up, he doesn't go down to punches very easily. Like he can take the, the, that beating and has that kind of just stubbornness about him that he will take that beating. Uh, and then, like you said, though, now fighting a guy who is one of the all-time greats and who is bigger than him significantly coming, you know, up a weight class. So it seems like some of those those variables, somebody's allure in one of those ways has got to crumble. And that's always uh, an attractive appeal. And I think that's that's one of the big things going on in this fight is we wonder, like, all right, is this going to be one where Nick Diaz just takes a hellacious ass kicking uh, and if so, Chad, are you emotionally prepared to sit through that? <laughs> I think I am just because, you know, from the moment this fight was announced, it's one that seemed like it was going to be uh, uh, a prime, like a rehabilitation, rebuild your image fight for Anderson Silva. It seemed like one that, that he was definitely going to take. Uh, the the jujitsu question is interesting, though, I think, just because Nick Diaz has been such a like a high octane, always moving forward, striking guy, and I think that he is won over a lot of fans with that style of fighting that you forget how good he is on the ground. Uh, he I, forgets, I think. He yeah. doesn't ever want to seem to want to use it. I can't remember which strike force fight it was, but there was uh it wasn't the Paul Daly one, but that was one where Diaz got dropped and then got back up and kind of uh against all odds ended up scoring a TKO victory. But there was one in strike force against a guy that he fought maybe it was the cyborg santos fight uh but it was one where he was getting like he was looking pretty good on his feet but the, but it was competitive and then the fight hit the ground and it was over in like 30 seconds that was the the cyborg yeah. the male cyborg santos one he got an arm bar and the like right. as you saw the fight get called off the reaction was oh wow yeah we forget but nick diaz is actually like maybe better on the ground than he is standing. Although the way I remember that one was, I mean, it was competitive on the feet, but he was winning. He was definitely, he was beating Santos up on the feet. And Santos was the one who said, uh, to hell with this plan B and shot for a takedown. And Diaz pretty much immediately locked up an okay. arm bar there. Yeah. And, you know, not too different from, uh, where he's fighting Takanori Gomi, except he was getting kind of messed up in that one at first to the point where Gomi seemed like disheartened by the fact that Nick Diaz was able to take all that, get his face ripped open and was still firing back. And then Gomi kind of runs out of gas, starts getting beat up. And then when he gets in desperation mode, goes to take Diaz down and gets, gets go-go plotted there. in one of the, the most awesome uh, pride fights from that era. But I, I mean, it's one of those things where if he's not going to go in there and and take Anderson Silva down, I mean, when's the last time we really saw Nick Diaz working top game jujitsu? I mean, he did it a little bit against where Carlos Condit, right? Where he, in, like in the fifth round, like the end of the fight, where he spent the entire fight basically chasing Carlos Condit around, he finally gets him down and pretty much immediately takes his back, uh, if memory serves, and then it's like, oh, no, wait. You should have done that a lot sooner, and then you might have had some time to do something with it. I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't seem like Nick Diaz, especially if you start punching him in the face, he does not seem to have that attitude where he's like, okay, what I'm doing isn't working. I should do something else. Instead, he's like, fuck you. I'm going to make this work. Like, how how dare you? How dare you, you know, shoot down my my first game plan like that? He doesn't have a, a plan B kind of mentality. Yeah, which is why I think if ever there was a fight where the brain trust down at Caesar Gracie wanted to get together and be like, hey, you know what? Let's switch it up here. Let's come out with a different look that maybe no one will be expecting. Uh, this would be the one to do it, man. Like if if 
Nick Diaz came out and really wanted to test the, the fitness and the recovery of Anderson Silva's legs, uh, shoot a couple takedowns, man. Just see what happens. Like, see if he can, you know, see, see if he can defend those. And if not, man, maybe you get the fight into a world where it's possible that, that you have the advantage. I don't know. I mean, we, we hear a lot about Anderson Silva's ground game. We, you know, obviously he pulled out the kind of Hail Mary triangle choke victory over Chael Sonnen in their first fight. Uh, but historically in his career, we haven't seen a ton of him, uh, you know, being on the ground and or being very successful on the ground. Uh, I guess, you know, in the more recent fights against Chris Weidman, but like if I'm Gil Melendez and I'm down at the, at the Caesar Gracie camp, this is one where I really try to talk Nick Diaz into into some ground action. I think that would be his best chance, his best path to victory. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. By the way, the odds, uh, Anderson Silva looks like a, about a uh, four and a half to one favorite. Nick Diaz going off right now at about plus three thirty or so, uh, according to the you know, depending on what odds maker you choose. You know, if you want to, if, if you're Nick Diaz and you want to just go total black hat villain on this one, you know what you do. Come out there, touch gloves, and immediately start doing that just like front knee stomp kind of kick. <laughs> just immediately targeting that that injured leg of Anderson Silva and then just bathe in the booze as everyone becomes enraged at your lack of sportsmanship. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some ellip- elliptical kicks or whatever they're called. <laughs> That'd be kind of awesome. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine if, if Nick Diaz were to take Anderson Silva down and like choke him out? And then he won the fight. We Stockton would call in sick the rest of the week. Yeah, all commerce would just shut down. Well, you know, I when you think about like as far as stakes for this fight, right? Like, wouldn't it be so much awesomer and just more fun going forward if Nick Diaz won? Because if Anderson Silva wins and the UFC really sticks to this thing, I'm like, all right, he gets shot at the champ next. I don't know, man. Come on. That would feel a little bit weird, especially like we've talked about before, how much other awesome stuff is going on at middleweight right now. It seems like a real damn shame to keep all those guys waiting in line while, you know, you give Anderson Silva another shot just for beating up a welterweight. However, if Nick Diaz goes out there and beats Anderson Silva, okay, on one hand, people might say, oh, Silva's old and was hurt, whatever, but he's still Anderson Silva and it's still up a weight class. Then, you know, you throw Nick Diaz into that, that welterweight pool where we're not really sure what to do, who's going to get the next shot. Man, that thing sort of gets a whole lot more interesting, doesn't it? Yeah, I would love to think that this isn't a title eliminator for either guy, especially since, you know, both of them have expressed that they just don't care about the championship. Uh, but, you know, I know that it's 2015 and we're pulling out all the stops in terms of trying to make sellable fights. Uh, but it would be a real... Uh, career revitalization for Nick Diaz if he could pull this off. He's coming off two straight losses. Suddenly you go down there in the welterweight division with a victory over Anderson Silva. All things are possible, yeah. I believe. Uh, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, I know you talked about Nikita Krylov earlier in Are You Fucking Kidding Me? But I, I wanted to revisit him a little bit here just because in the wild and weird world of MMA nicknames, you know, Beast in 25-8, Cassius Clay Collard. Uh, we'd be remiss, I think, if we didn't notice how goddamn strange it is that Nikita Krylov calls himself Al Capone and has pictures of himself online where he's wearing a trench coat and a fedora and apparently cites Al Capone as one of his heroes in life. Uh, I'm just saying weird priorities, man. 
to say that your hero in life is basically one of the 20th century's most brash psychopaths and a murderer and a publicity hound and a dude who died in prison of syphilis. Just saying. I'm just saying. Also, legend has it that that Share Dog Fight Finder photo of him dressed as Al Capone and posing in UFC gloves, that was before he was in the UFC. Right, yeah. He put those gloves on, took that picture, and sent it to Share Dog and asked them to use it as his Fight Finder picture. Well, those are the kind of dudes the UFC likes, man. Dudes that want it so bad they put on UFC gloves before they're even in the promotion. <laughs> well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, we mentioned it in the Breakfast of Champions, but... Former employer to us both, CagePotato.com, seems to be going through some times, man. Uh, ben Goldstein, the founding editor who gave both of us jobs at different points in our career and both at times when we were pretty goddamn in need of some jobs uh, and really helped us out and was a good dude, good editor. Uh, you know, he's not dead. He's still around. Uh, but, you know, he's done over at Cage Potato, uh, which is very sad to see. Uh, and the future of Cage Potato itself seems unclear. Today, they put up a post where they're basically asking people to write for them for free and also to send them money, which makes me wonder what's the money for if people are writing for free. I'm just saying... It's sad, man. It's sad to lose Cage Potato. I thought it was a, an important voice in the MMA space. Um, and I, I'm even sadder to see it lose Ben Goldstein, who was its heart and, and its soul for, for many years. I'm just saying that's a bummer and that's a loss for the MMA media community. You're right. I'm just saying that as well. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you what happened at UFC 183. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. I think I'm going to go straight to the next Well, that's impressive that you showed the stick to to do an hour and change of, of gratis podcasting, and now you're going to go whip out your Obamacare card and slap it on the, on the desk over at the walk-in clinic. If, if this is it for me, I'm going to go.